Good evening and welcome to the 79th episode of the Cood Street Podcast. It's just two weeks before Christmas. The days are as cool and clear in the north as they are hot and sunny in, in the south. And with the holidays fast approaching, Gary and I have invited longtime listener Paul Cornell to join us on the podcast. Good morning, Gary. And good evening, Jonathan. Thank you for characterizing this horrible, bitter Arctic weather we're having as cool. Yes, it's cool here. <laughs> and in the north of London, good afternoon, Paul Cornell. Hello, how are you? I'm very well in your good self. I'm, I'm sorry, I've broken format already, I should have said, and good evening, Jonathan. There we go. <laughs> oh, look, we don't oh, yes. need to follow all of the, you know, the the bits and pieces of this. It's just a pleasure to get you on after all this time. You've been a, a, you know, a long-time listener, an occasional commenter, and it's been a joy knocking into you at the, or bumping into you at conventions over the last couple of years, so it's it's good to have you actually here. Help, well, thank help. you very much. I, I I, thank you. I, I, I associate your voices, both of you put together, um, with running, because I always listen to the Cood Street podcast while running on my treadmill. And um, so, ob- obviously, I'm having this big uh, autonomic nervous system reaction now, and I want to get up off my desk and just run off into the distance. Well, I was going to say, is your pulse rate up? Are you feeling sort of clammy hands, that kind of thing? Or is it all like that? Yeah, but I'm used to that around you. <laughs> well, yes. I, well, we did have that conversation in Reno. Um, did we not? And, and our bet. We have our bet. Oh, yes, we have a bet. You haven't forgotten? Yes, I... Forgotten already, have you? Oh, no, not at all. <laughs> I've been telling you to win. It's $20 now. Uh-huh. I think it was not... Well, hang on. Wasn't it... Tw- in fairness to you, wasn't it £20? Um, it can be £20 if you like. I'm... <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if you want to make it richer. <laughs> I feel... I remain supremely confident. But we I'm not need going, to explain. Well, I don't know if we should. Do you think, do you think we should draw back the, the veil on this, or is it best left private, Paul? I think we should draw back the veil on this. Well, okay. Because it helps my side of the bet, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> Abs- okay, fair enough. This will probably get me in all kinds of trouble. Do, do you want to tell the story, Paul? Well, I think that Heaven's Shadow by Michael Cassut and David Goya is a really good stab at a modern-day Arthur C. Clarke-style airport novel, um, near-future space opera. Okay. Uh, and um, I made the, perhaps, exaggerated cam- claim that it ought to be on the Hugo shortlist this year. Now, honestly, I don't think... I think what's on the Hugo shortlist this year is perhaps the most open question of any year. Um I think maybe we could name two or three books. I think four or five. Yeah. It, it's it's a very open game this year. Sure, sure. Um, but Heaven Shadow hasn't received any coverage at all. And I said, uh, well, initially I think it was $10 to John. Um, $10 it gets on the shortlist. Well, I think actually and the original thing was you said it was going to win. And I, I, no, I didn't no, say no, no, the, said, the, the, the bet wasn't to win, certainly. The bet was to just get on the ballot. But I thought you said hmm. to me, I've read the book that's going to win the Hugo. Oh, I may have done, but you know what I'm like. I've had a few. <laughs> and then, by of course, the time it got down, by the time it got down to money, I think it was just the shortlist. <laughs> and then, well, <laughs> well, I mean, it was partly because there was that banter thing, and because it's it wasn't a public conversation. My response very much was, "Paul, but I've read the book that's going to win the Hugo." And I went, "No, you haven't," um, <laughs> which isn't very charitable. It's got nothing at that point. He hadn't even named the book, kind of thing, really. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, it's just <laughs> just got John betting on my illiteracy. <laughs> And then, of course, he, he told me what the book was. Now, I have to be entirely pre- you know, fair to both 
Messrs. Cassett and Goyer. I have not read their novel. Uh, the reason that I bet against it making me Hugo but was simply based on the level of discussion of the book. And, and there's almost no, it must yeah, be said. Yeah, there's almost yeah. no discussion of the book, rightly or wrongly. And I think Cassett has done, placed quite well in the Nebulas over time, but not so well in the Hugo. So, I mean, there are some writers who, if their book comes to notice slightly later in the year, they've got enough of a Hugo profile that they can kind of overcome that, you know, sort of and be a late runner. Um, mm. But I'm not, well, it's my, my feeling that it's unlikely that that book could. So now all of our listeners, and, and I noticed that the, at least one of our podcast downloads uh, has had like a thousand listeners or so to it now, uh, that all of them now know that you and I have this bet. So wherever the next <laughs> cross paths is sort of, because at least, well, you'll be in Chicago, won't you, Paul? Um, yes, yes, I will. And Gary, you will be in Chicago for World Cup. Uh, the convention is a mile from my house. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm, <laughs> sadly, I'm quite unlikely to be there for a variety of oh. reasons. Well, you know, I have to make a decision about conventions, and it's that or World Fantasy. And my, my it's all right. You can. Yeah. You'll be able to pay me by PayPal. Absolutely true. I'll, I, I too have a PayPal account. Fortunately. <laughs> so we should say <laughs> our listeners those. <laughs> Um, John, by, by, by mentioning this, Jonathan, you've you've, you've increased Paul's chances. I, well, I'm uh, willing to do yeah. that. I'm, I'm willing to put my thumb. I'm so confident, am I, that I'm willing to put my thumb on the scales on his side. Um, and I'll even I'm going to mount a counter argument as well about to, to, to this, and that is that whilst I see the reasons that Paul suggests that um, the the Cassett and Goyer novel might make a Hugo ballot. I think the book that will fill that slot most likely actually is the Daniel Abraham's Ty Frank book. Um, yes. Wake, but wakes by, by, by James S. A. Corey. I think that's which one is that, also excellent. Yeah. And it is a really fun book. Um, and sooner or later I've, I've got to do all kinds of like looking forward to next year kind of stuff. And I'm looking forward to the second of those very much. Well, can I can I explain a little as to why um, I'm I was so enthused? Yeah. Um, it, it seems to me to be a kind of in the way that J.K. Abrams, J.J. Um, Abrams, mm. um, takes on uh, pop culture uh, memes which slightly run out of steam and injects them with a new something. Mm -hmm. um, I'd been waiting for ages for somebody to do what Clark did, which is to be the the Stephen King of SF. Uh, that is to say, to um, you know, Clark was a bestseller many sure, times in his sure. life, yeah. and very much yeah. addressed that that airport book audience. Mm -hmm. And um, I do think there's room for, especially near future, space based SF that talks to that audience. And I think this book is it. And not only does it do in a very modern way with character and audience reaction, you know, a, a wired world watching yeah. um, the near future space stuff. Um, it doesn't ignore the fact that, you know, the whole space thing is going away. And it also has that brilliant little pinch of Clarkian numinousness, the oh moment from 2001. Mm -hmm. um, it has a bit of my God, oh. it's full of stars. And, um, you know, uh, this little blend, it's kind of 
I knew I was going to like this book before it came along. It should just have uh, Arthur C. Clarke. You remember that? This is that. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I just think it occupies an ecological niche. It may be that it's talking to the wrong audience for the Hugos, that it's not actually talking to us. It's talking to the mainstream. Mm -hmm. The mainstream don't seem to have noticed it much either. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I, th I think you got I think you got the Locus review in and um, you uh, just thought, hmm, $20, eh? And you crumpled up the review and threw it in the, in the bin. <laughs> I can't even tell you what the truth is. Because that would be far, far too controversial. <laughs> but, uh, but, but no, that's not exactly what happened. I'm not even going to say it was close to what happened, but it's not certainly not exactly what happened. Um, right. I will say, I follow your logic right up to your choice of book. Right. In the sense that I agree right. with you entirely about the need for that kind of science fiction. Um, I'm just not convinced that that book is the one that's going to get the recognition. I, I, I was wondering, and this, this will talk directly to something Gary read just quite just recently. I was wondering if actually it might be Al Reynolds who might have a chance at being that. Oh, well, with the Blue Remembered Earth? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to that hugely. There, there is a bit of that. And, 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 and Paul, you've about convinced me that I want to read this because I like that sort of thing as well. And I've, for years I kept thinking this is, this is the direction that Stephen Baxter is heading in. Uh, mm, and but and some, of his, some of his NASA novels, and that's a, you know, the... the the, the period of, well, there are so many different kinds of Stephen Baxter novels. Um, I wonder if the moment for that sort of science fiction has passed. Uh, and I, 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 in the first place, in the second place, I wonder if Clark would have ever hit the bestseller list had it not been for 2001 and its immediate sequels. Mm, uh, indeed. By the, time, by the time we were getting to the Hammer of God, uh, Clark was really uh, you know, operating on steam, I think. Mm. So that the the, the idea of a big well, I don't think well, Clark never really learned to do the kinds of things with character and pacing that you're talking about. Um, he mm. was writing Clark novels up until the end. Um, the reason I wonder if that moment has passed is I'm not sure that science fiction is uh, has got that kind of mainstream appeal. I don't. I mean, the idea of, for example, you mentioned the Stephen King. I would think uh, Stephen King being a world unto himself. That a comparable thing might be something like, uh, oh, I don't know, last year's The Passage by uh, Justin Cronin, or what's the mm -hmm. zombie novel that's a big bestseller now um, uh -huh. by Colin? Uh, oh, I'm, I'll think of the name in a moment. Yep. In other words, something something which really straddles mainstream literary bestsellerdom and and deals with genre materials in the same way. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure that science fiction is in the same position, for example, that zombie or vampire fiction is. Well, I think this novel kind of proves that the ground is indeed unfertile, because mm. this was the best try at it, and the best try doesn't seem to have worked. But um, was You'll have to. What was the book marketed as? As partly mainstream, or was it sort of packaged purely as genre science fiction? Well, it's got a, it's got a very, very. It, no, it, it, I think it was um, thrown towards the mainstream in some way. The cover is simply a green hue it's some things things we can't make out silhouetted against the green of science fiction science fiction green yeah. and um, uh, it looks like it's pitched at the mainstream it, it doesn't want to have a spaceship on there you know yeah. but um <laughs> but it was but it also came out from a uh, a, a core science fiction imprint i think it's an ace hardcover yeah. or something so yeah. so they're marketing it straight to that group of, to uh the the, the core genre audience immediately just by by that choice you know 
Mm. Uh, if, if, if they'd gone to a broader, into a, a different publisher, perhaps, no, and I'm not putting down Ace at all because they're very, they're terrific at what they do. Um, but it might have been more likely to be a main, a, a, a breakout kind of a book, which is sort of what you're mm. talking about. Yeah, um, uh, I, I, I'm always interested in in uh, getting uh, in the relationship between the ghetto and the mainstream, mm-hmm. and um, you know, SF is the thing which in one of its forms that is the the near future space opera mm-hmm. um that used mm-hmm. to be our that used to be our big brand mm-hmm. and indeed for a lot of people in the mainstream that's still the only thing we are and um but our big big brand isn't selling anymore a lot of our little brands are doing pretty well out there mm-hmm. but um despite the fact that um SF has kind of there's kind of been another big bang over there SF has sort of started again in literary fiction Mm-hmm. Because we've kept the ghetto, the, we've kept the ghetto walls so solid and impermeable that actually it's just kind of leaked through the floor and sprung up again <laughs> over there. Do you really think it's us keeping the ghetto walls impermeable? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, it's, uh, what, what, well I'm always, okay. I've said it before here on the podcast, but uh, I'm always bemused that anybody gives a damn. Mm. You know, I mean, seriously. I mean, in the sense of if you're finding readers. I mean, everybody would like to find more readers, and everybody would like more respect, and I understand that. But people seem to get really bent out of the shape about the fact that a particular group of people have no interest in what we're doing, uh, and that when they do it, they do it in a way we don't like them to do it. Uh, mm. And I kind of think, well, so what? I mean, get on with doing what you're doing, let them get on with doing what they're doing, and it's not particularly a, an enormous issue. Uh, but I, people I always are very that... passionate. Yeah, I, I always say that we should give the Hugo for best SF novel to the best SF novel and not the best SF novel by a writer who's come to visit the ghetto and bowed their head. <laughs> and um, I think we, if we did that, we'd give it to some very different books often. <laughs> well, sometimes it, it, does, seem that, it yeah. does seem that, 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 the convention, that the award sometimes goes to the awfully nice person who comes to our convention often. Mm. Which is yes. sweet and understandable, but doesn't give you the best of whatever the breed might be, which is what you'd hope an award would go to. I think a lot of the literary SF that's appearing now is very interesting, and I, I can sort of see it immediately fitting into the history of SF. I assume that Gary will be dealing with it almost immediately and, you know, fitting it into the canon. Mm-hmm. But whereas it's part of the canon, it strikes me that yeah. it's not part of the genre. Yeah. Well, there are two kinds of ghetto walls you're talking about, and I, I think I think you're correct in that those of us inside the ghetto have been you know, shoring up the walls while we're complaining about them. Uh, one is the, is the literary uh, genre divide, which you're talking about, uh, and that is always going to be a problem. It's one of the things that we were talking uh, uh, about with Ursula over the Margaret Atwood book, who is somebody who, at least under her, in her impression, is sympathetic toward the genre. She's sympathetic mm. towards something she misunderstands. The second set of ghetto walls has really nothing to do with literary culture. It has to do with bestsellers. And uh, literary, I, I'm sure that a great many literary writers feel that they're ghettoized against bestsellerdom in the same way that science fiction writers feel they are. Uh, that's <laughs> yes. virtually a genre unto itself. Absolutely. Um, I, do, I do note that it's not about what's written on the back of the books either. Mm. Um, back of Neil Gaiman and China Mieville, it just says fiction. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And it's what these guys say. It's the fact they continually reassure us that they haven't, you know, run away from the ghetto, that they're still here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, anyway, Gary, Gary, I'm sorry. I seem to have been interrupting you continuously. It's uh, but part of part no, of the, no, part no. of the joy of <laughs> part of the joy of Coon Street for me is, uh, is 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 your 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 facility with history. The way that uh, you you can um, you know kind of um, categorize and give new light on modern stuff by where it fits into the sweep of history. I, I think um, one of the things I like particularly about Cood Street is the way that it's not just a, it's not just about the history and it's not just about the modern stuff. It, it's um, a little bit of both. Well, you know what? Uh, we can, I, I think Jonathan will agree with, uh, with me about this. I think that approach is uh, an approach that Jonathan and I together and separately had for years with Charles Brown mm. about what he called the conversation. Uh, mm. That every new work of science fiction is a new, uh, is, an, is an addition to a conversation which has been, in Charles's view, going on for seventy years or eighty years or something, uh, and I think there's some mm. truth to that, uh, to a lesser or greater degree. I think part of the resentment that some of us feel toward, uh, let's say, a Margaret Atwood or a Justin Cronin, if you will, is that mm. uh, they're either joining a conversation that was over forty years ago. Or they're mm-hmm. unaware of the conversation going on at all. Uh, so so th- there's a lot of irritation, a justifiable irritation, at somebody uh, rebooting an old dystopian concept or, or, or essentially writing a book which is in dialogue with George Orwell uh, and getting a lot of recognition for it. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, some of this work is very good and some of it clearly mm-hmm. – um, is in dialogue with the whole sweep of SF. Um, one of the, the things I like, again, about the um, Goya is that um, uh, they don't mm-hmm. just um, quote the phrase, big dumb object, they attribute it to Ros Caveney. Uh-huh. You know, there, there's clearly, clearly genre knowledge there. And, um, you know, um, I do think, I, 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 I think Atwood is majorly... Uh, a, well, I don't. I don't think anybody here is arguing. One one of the major science fiction writers who hates being called a science fiction writer doesn't doesn't stop her being a major science fiction writer, you know. And um, I, I think you know it's. Uh, I wish we you edited this podcast. I've come to the end of my eruditeness. That's it for me, erudite. Now we have very little well, erudition on this podcast. Don't worry. You know, I- I have to think that literary writers. I mean, th- there are there are a few people uh, who are defiantly uh, advocates of the genre in the mainstream. There are there are a few Michael Chabins out there, um, mm. but for somebody who has a, a stellar, you know, a decades-long literary reputation, I th- one of the things that Atwood must be aware of is that Doris Lessing, who uh, was very much an advocate for science fiction, she grew up reading Stapledon. She loves Greg Bear and this sort of thing. And and made that very clear, and it did, and, and not that her science fiction novels were very good, by and large they weren't, but they were sincere. Actually, she wrote one really good science fiction novel, I think, and that's The Fifth Child. Um, but the point is, she was very appreciative of the genre, and it essentially gained her no love within the genre and generated a lot of skepticism among her core readership. Yeah, yeah she she seems to have won the Nobel Prize despite science fiction fans and literary exactly. fans both right. not getting it. <laughs> Well, and this is why it's in many ways not worth worrying about, because mm. it's 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 not a, it's not something you're ever going to win, you know. I mean, I I think having had the conversation with Ursula, a good portion of the reason for her book existing was to get those annoying people at her readings to stop standing up and saying, "Why do you deny that you write science mm. fiction?" Which is just bad manners anyway, and really that's the real issue there: people being 
mm. poorly socialized. But you're, you're not going to, you just, maybe it'll change. I mean, uh, but I, I struggle to see where. I mean, if, if Jonathan Lethem can write a science fiction novel and it doesn't change things, if uh, Michael Chabon can basically mm. write a Fritz Lieber book and uh, not change things, you know, mm. it isn't going to change. Well, no, the attitude, uh, uh, one of the best examples of that attitude, I think, was after um, uh, Lessing won the Nobel Prize, there was a, an outraged screed from Harold Bloom, the Yale professor <laughs> who has written the Western canon. And basically, apart from the fact that she wrote far too political novels when she was young, he said she spent the last several years writing third-rate science fiction. And knowing a little bit about Bloom, I was thinking, well, the best she could have is the best she could have aspired for was writing second-rate science fiction, because in his mind, that's as high as it gets. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 there's no first-rate science. The only fantastic writers that he has any respect for are John Crowley and, going back a few generations, uh, David Lindsay of A Voyage to Arcturus. Yeah. I, I mean, Good I was... Lord. Yeah. That's a, that's a very yeah. narrow personal... That's a very strange personal canon. It's a very else. strange one, yes, because David Lindsay couldn't write for beans, but he had a fantastic <laughs> imagination. <laughs> Well, I was going to say there's about four better writers than David Lindsay doing exactly the same thing. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm Stapleton, notably, the, the person who keeps out of it. It's like he read a science fiction book once. That was it. He quite liked it. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas Bloom read one once and didn't. Right. I did like um, uh, Jonathan... Oh, no, it was Michael Chabon's uh, Hugo acceptance speech sent mm. in by letter. Yes. which began as a science fiction writer, which is kind of like getting married and getting up there and uh, saying, my wife and I, it just gets you that <laughs> yeah. random course straight away. <laughs> Absolutely. And, but, but, and, and from everything I've heard of him, I mean, uh, I've not met him, but Charles knew him. Uh, it, it's a very legitimate, genuine relationship. And, I mean, and you can see it, uh, you know, the people who ha have, have had a love of the field and who have maintained it. But oh, I've, I've met I've met Chabon, yeah. and um, he when when we met, he had his two little kids with him, and his two little kids oh, were both I, dressed I, I, as Doctor Who. I think I think he's a fan, <laughs> you know. Well, not only that, but uh, my test, which is really a narrow and extremely uh, selfish test, is uh, I'll meet somebody like Chabon, and he he knew who I was. I mean, he had been reading Locus for some time at that point. Uh, and uh, another example of somebody who really would love to be part of our world and is 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 working at it is, is Juno Diaz, mm -hmm. um, who showed up at a reader con a couple of years ago. He was coming because Chip Delaney needed somebody to drive him. So, uh, so here is, here is Chip Delaney's driver and he turns out to you know be a Pulitzer prize winner. <laughs> um, but he immediately he, he, he immediately recognized me and Clute, And I thought at first, uh, here's somebody who's really clever and really well socialized because he knows, but then he started quoting things. <laughs> uh, from Clute's reviews or from my reviews, and I thought this guy is a geek. <laughs> but then this but, is it. But, I mean, it's, it's 2011. I mean, it, it, it's cliche to say we won and all that kind of stuff. But you know, geeks are everywhere. Ner I mean, my uh, ten-year-old daughter regularly asks me, "Am I a nerd?" You know, um, <laughs> and you're kind of going, if you, if, you, "If you have to ask, the answer probably is yes." Um, and there's no disgrace in being a geek or a nerd and everybody's watching Doctor Who and everybody's watching Star Wars and Star Trek or whatever else it might be or Fringe or something it's mm -hmm. it, it, it's a cultural mainstream even if it's not a literary mainstream mm. and um, yeah. I, I actually wonder if perhaps we, we leapt from um, minority to having won 
without actually taking the literature with us. That that it's now kind of looked down upon as too passe, too mainstream almost. Um, uh, Neil Stevenson, um, Reamed, is kind mm. of... <laughs> Well, it, it's being written directly to geek culture and ob about oh, sure. geek culture. But now, mm -hmm. and unlike at the start of Stevenson's career, now that feels like he's writing directly to a mainstream audience. Yeah. Um, that, that there's no back dividing line between geekhood and the rest of the world now. No, no. And, um, yeah. And, and he expects oh, yeah. the rest of the world to take on the tropes of World of Warcraft and understand them completely. And, and of course they do, because, you know, those things are enormous. And, and, and in some ways you could look at it and you could argue with, with perhaps some degree of skill to actually try to win that what's actually happened is that yes we uh, made that leap leap from you know genre to mainstream at the same time that mainstream literature became a genre and kind of sales wise right. at least is kind of marginalized mostly yeah I think that's uh, I, th I think that's true and I, I I think that the other factor that enters into this and, and and Paul you're very much involved in this as well is that this large-scale geek culture that surrounds uh, the ghetto now I'm not sure it's necessarily a literary science fiction culture uh, in, in in the Stevenson novel takes a lot of advantage of, of, of gaming uh, and, and and the gaming world and the massive multiplayer things and that sort of thing and there's always been this enormous uh, sort of uh, orientation to geekdom that comes from gaming, from movies, from from Matrix, from various uh, bad adaptations of Philip K. Dick. Um, and <laughs> one of the things that fascinates me, and this is this is where I'm absolutely fascinated by by what you've been able to do and uh, and others in uh, the the Doctor Who world. In many ways, is a much larger world than the literary science fiction world. I know lots I and lots know. of people who. I think, I, the sense I get, I know a lot of people who know Doctor Who in the same way they used to know Star Trek, but that doesn't necessarily yeah. translate into reading anything beyond that universe. I I would say it's, yes, that's true. There, there isn't necessarily a connection between being a fan of any uh, SF media output and then going on to read the books. Although you'd, you'd be surprised. Um, but... Um, in that there is there is a chunk of that, um, mm -hmm. I I do think that often media products take up what used to be purely um, things that only happened in SF literature. For instance, your average season of Fringe mm -hmm. will burn th mm. will burn through twenty um, first rate SF short stories mm -hmm. in a really good mm. season. Yeah. Um, that that is to say, your classic time paradox short story is now probably going to be a TV episode, um, mm -hmm. rather than um, a a short story in Asimov's, and um, the the time paradox especially is almost um, an SF form done in television now, and um, uh, I I think that SF null has come to describe the mainstream. Um, well, it's interesting. So it's not. It's not so uh, much ahead, that it's not. Sorry, pardon me. It's it's not so much that the media leads people to the literature. It's that the feeling of the literature has spread out to encompass all other media, and that now people find themselves automatically thinking in terms of parallel universes, time paradoxes, mm. the, the way that mm -hmm. um, di di dickness, 
has now, um, to coin a phrase, has now um, engulfed the world so that one's emotional states are best represented in pub conversations by reference to parallel. I thought I was in a parallel universe. Um, uh, parallel universes, time paradoxes. It's like, um, you know, kind of the what uh, the, the underlying laws of physics have actually spread out uh, an awareness of it has spread out into everyday conversation. One of the odd things I've seen among uh, uh, journalists and, and, well, I guess media people, executives uh, in the States at least, when they talk about a show like Fringe or, or, or Sanctuary, uh, they don't refer to them as science fiction shows, they refer to them as genre shows. And the, the modifier genre now has become almost a code word for science fiction and fantasy. Uh, American Horror Story is not described as a horror show. It's described as a genre show. <coughs> well, which, come on, it's in know. the title. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, well, that's true. <laughs> he does have you. But I used but, but to believe, I, uh, uh, opt- over-optimistically, I thought one of the things that, that this effect was, uh, uh, was a way of training a larger audience to be able to enter science fiction more easily. I, I remember when the Back to the Future movies came out, which were enormously popular. Uh, among kids, and those were virtually the first mainstream movies that went into some detail about parallel time streams and changing the past and that sort of thing. And it was uh, whatever the quality of the movies, uh, and they got actually I enjoyed the first one quite a bit. Uh, they, they served as a primer for people who didn't quite, who couldn't quite figure out the whole time thing. Uh, it was a very primitive. Um, uh, streamlined version of a time paradox and at the time i thought okay now you've got a bunch of kids because kids like the movies uh kids who are you know eight to twelve years old having learned one of the basic tropes of science fiction which now will enable them to read science fiction with less of an uh, a, a learning curve at the entry but unfortunately i don't think that's happened or at least i don't see it as having happened i i think I, I think a certain number of people are predisposed all the time, a certain mm-hmm. percentage, to find their way to the heart of a genre. Um, I, I do think um, I, I do think we kind of cap, we keep it too hard. I think we make the entrance too hard. I think we demand hard things of people once they arrive. You know, the rules of the mm-hmm. ghetto are tough, and. Um, I, I did have another example for how SF and all this has spread out, that um, a show like Bones, mm-hmm. um, otherwise a completely ordinary police procedural, um, their pathology lab is full of science fictional devices. They have um, a, mm-hmm. a full-body hologra- hologram which stands up in the middle of the room. This doesn't exist. This is not yes. real. Um, it's mm-hmm. almost as if the public have started to assume that... Um, uh, a useful device will be invented anyway. And back in the day, you know, um, I have an in- SF mm-hmm. encyclopedia from the early 90s, which carefully includes um, in its SF movie section, it, it's, you know, the grand listing of all SF movies ever, um, carefully includes the James Bond movies that feature fantastical devices in the listing yep. mm-hmm. and excludes the ones that do not. These days... Uh, how would you even start to sort things on that basis? How would you decide where the dividing line between is that device real is, is uh, we've sort of lost track of what reality is in these terms. I think actually just to stick with the James Bond thing as well. If you look at the evolution of how James Bond films have handled those science fictional gadgets, 
it has become much more unremarkable and integrated into the actual story themselves as well. You, know, you can see that even where they're showing you something extreme and unusual, it's much more matter-of-fact. And in some mm -hmm. ways, you know, sort of real-world experience shows this sort of assumption that anything that was in science fiction will will ultimately happen. I mean, this yeah. whole, I mean, the whole thing that for nearly thirty-something years or whatever it is, um, what, from 1984 till today, so th thirty-six years. A whole group of people have devoted themselves to trying to build Gibson Cyberspace, which was just something he made up. Mm -hmm. The fact that when I recorded the podcast that we did back in Reno, I used a device almost exactly like Neil Stevenson's Young Ladies Victorian Primer, you know, yeah. with the iPad. You know, the, we, we assume that what you read in these books will actually happen, particularly if it's in, in that sort of, in the, the diversion of where. Science fiction splits from the um, everything to, everything to do with space and external nature, and m moves into the whole information um, singularity that has occupied so much of everything post you know uh, the arrival of Neuromancer. You know the Neuromancer mm. strain, which is also a, a, which has a significant sort of element of dickness about it. Um, is seen as being real world. I mean, and in fact, the, the, the fact that Dickness is out there at all, because we're not going to let Dickness go, that's too perfect. Um, mm -hmm. That's been successful because that modern SFNL paranoia it has become to some degree integral to our world as well. Mm. You know, whereas the stuff that, I mean, a book like, we touched on Leviathan's Wake by James Corey, to some degree mm -hmm. feels like a science fiction fantasy. Not, not science fantasy, mm. but a future fantasy written a science fiction. It's not going to actually happen. It's like that the moment which I've referred to before in reading John Scalzi's Old Man's War, where the characters leave Earth for the first time, end up on a, a space station, and they're surrounded by, uh, you know, dozens of different alien species, and and you just think that doesn't feel real. That yeah, feels like it, a fantasy. Yeah, it's easy as is it as mm. easy as that you know uh we don't we we don't quite believe in alien species now um it's like we've been waiting too long in in a world where we're looking out at it and going is that real is that real mm. um well, we still don't I, I, have a reality for alien species no that's interesting i've been reading um because i think one of the central figures in this whole discussion is obviously gibson um and uh, the the fact is that as, as he said many times when he was writing Neuromancer, he didn't know how much of this was real or even possible. He didn't. He was writing it on a manual typewriter. Um, and I was reading his collection of essays, which is actually quite engaging. Um, and I, I, I like reading nonfiction by fiction writers in general. And nonfiction by science fiction writers uh, tends toward a kind of futuristic, I know stuff that you don't attitude. And uh, yeah. I mean, it, 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 Bruce Sterling does this all the time. He's just, you know, I am. Th there's this constant sense of I'm cooler than you are, and they are. I mean, he, he's cooler <laughs> than I am. Corey, Corey is way cooler than I am. The thing that strikes mm -hmm. me about Gibson is his, is his uh, sense of absolute amazement at this stuff. He he doesn't really pretend to know it, but he observes things in such a way. I mean, the the the, the, the tagline about Gibson is he writes. You know, science fiction about the present because, as he puts it, the future is here, but it's unevenly distributed. And when you look at his attitude toward things, I just read an essay last night on Singapore. He was in Singapore in, a few years ago. 
Uh, and Singapore is presented in, in very Orwellian terms. It's a, clearly a science fictional landscape, um, somewhere between Orwell and Ballard, I guess. And his perception of that is one of just absolute wide-eyed wonder that he sees these things in the world which remind him of the science fiction he grew up with. And, mm. and, he, and, and that comes across in his fiction. Uh, one of the things that, uh, if you look at, I don't know, Zero History, the most recent novel, there's nothing in it that's uh, that's new, but a lot in it that's science fictional. There's nothing in it that isn't real, but it feels science fictional because I didn't know about it before. And yeah. I think that's and, kind and of I what, think, Go ahead. I think the world is the world is even more full now of things we didn't know about. I mean, um, the um, digging into the the new detail. Um, uh, you know, this is the. Um, this is kind of why the world feels SFNL, why literature feels SFNL. Um, there's some something that happened, uh, I think, uh, uh, in in terms of media, because I, I think we're we're talking about where media and SF mm -hmm. literature meet, and what happens at that boundary. Um, uh, watching Lost before it became def definitely a genre show when it might have been a, uh, an entirely realistic show. Um, there's, I think, a very SFNL concentration on people's faces, um, more so than you would normally get in TV drama. And this has become a trope ever since Lost, because everybody's copying that and everybody's buying into this form. But it seems to be the question is, what is behind that face? What makes that human being? Can I actually take that expression as read? So many shifty mm -hmm. expressions, so many sidelong looks. I think some of this is, are they a terrorist? Um, can we trust the people amongst us? Or do we know who mm -hmm. everyone is? And this shades right into um, that, that Dickian, you know, can we pull that mask right off them? You know, is there somebody else under there? I would love to have seen Philip K. Dick's Mission Impossible. <laughs> he, he, oh, yeah. he, pitched an, he pitched an episode. Um, we've oh, really? got his, yeah, we've, we've got his synopsis. Um, it's not actually as crazy as you want it to be, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I, I think that the Philip, uh, Philip K. Dick full on mission impossible movie. Can you imagine <laughs> rubber mask within rubber mask within rubber mask? <laughs> mm -hmm. The only thing I'm surprised is um, they haven't made it into a movie yet. But, but that was the feeling I got from lost yeah. that it's actually questioning the nature of, personhood what these expressions mean what's behind that that's mm. kind of the modern feeling for me and um christopher priest i think uh, who's my favorite sf author um mm -hmm. my favorite author i i think he must be enjoying things like i can imagine christopher priest wandering around through skyrim i i think he must enjoy this uh sensation of there being new fictional spaces um, the Islanders seems to me to be, um, it's like he's got his own massive multiplayer game, which he's going to tell us about. <laughs> and, um, except, I haven't got to the end yet, but um, the only thing wrong with Christopher Priest is at the end of a Christopher Priest novel, everybody kind of shrugs and walks off. Um, but but um, <laughs> the, structure, the structure of the Islanders seems to preclude that, so I, I feel safe. Well, yeah. Gary could so, tell you, he's read it. Oh, well, yeah, I was going, but, I was going to say, I'm glad, I'm glad yeah, to hear you talking no. about the Islanders. Uh, a lot of people, I think, didn't like the novel as much as I did. I liked it a, a, a great deal. And I think the form of it works against it. It's a, it's a, it's a very postmodern form. It goes with the, the Dictionary of the Khazars. And people are, are saying, well, it's just a game. Well, it actually has a plot. 
actually has a, mm. a, a fairly interesting mystery plot, which unfolds in segments. And so it, it does, this one does end as a unit, but you're right, the form of it doesn't permit that kind of resolution. The resolution takes place in your brain at the end of it. Uh, and, well, that central, uh, that, that, that central plot would be the central quest, as we would mm -hmm. say, of, of, of a game. Um, but there's all sorts of side quests. Yes. And it's... Um, uh, I, do you think... Do you think I, I'd like to see him be involved in writing a, a, a computer game. I, I, don't, I don't think that would be a mad idea at all. I don't think it's a mad idea, but it's one of those things, and I can think of a few other examples uh, uh, through time, that just never seems to quite happen. You sort of sit there and go, that would be brilliant for this reason. You know, I mean, Christopher Priest doing a a game would be brilliant in the way that Gene Wolfe writing Star Trek novels would have been brilliant. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I tried to convince them. I did. Uh, you know, <laughs> well, I, I could make the argument, but I won't make it here. But um, no, I think I think it would. Do you think that? I, sorry, yeah. No, no, we've had this conversation before, and I, um, I mean. Uh, I, I talked to Gene about it once or twice because there's a sense that he would see anything as a challenge, and, um, and he's not going to do it. But he he knows exactly what he would do if he did do it, and it would be a perfect, perfectly complex and mysterious Gene Wolfe novel, an inch below the surface of what looks like a very ordinary Star Trek novel. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it, oh, it I tell wonderful. you what, the problem is, yeah, well, mm -hmm. yeah, Paul, yes. Oh, no, sorry, please go on. I, I, I stopped. I, I interrupted again. Oh, no, I, uh, I, I was thinking uh, that sort of thing uh, and the same thing with, with, uh, with Christopher Priest writing an online game. I'm not sure that does a lot for the genre as much as uh, the online gaming world has adopted, in some cases, very, in some very sophisticated ways, the, the, the tropes of science fiction. I think they're so engaging to the people who play them, and I'm not one, that that necessarily not necessarily going to lead back to the literature. I mean, if if Chris Priest did a, a game like that, I don't see those gamers as saying, "I think I'm going to go read some Christopher Priest novels now," because gaming yeah. is so engaging at so many levels that I don't think it leads back to literature. No, I think you're right, um, and also the identity of authors is often buried very deeply in games. Um, even right. the identity of voice actors isn't something you that's very you know hugely um, mm. publicized. I, I did think of something that does lead directly from media to the literature, mm -hmm. and that is the wonderful run of Doctor Who novels written by established SF authors, kind of one a year. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've had the Moorcock, and we're going to get the Stephen Baxter, and we're going to get the um, Alistair Reynolds. Yes. And um, well, I think that's a, a brilliant direct bridge. It'll be as long as it, yeah. It, yeah, as long as they're not terribly constrained, I think that's an excellent idea. I mean, um, one of the things I do think is an encouraging sign, and um, and and Paul, I'm giving you some credit for this as well. Is that well, the whole Doctor Who franchise has done this. There's a there's a genuine back and forth movement among uh, science fiction literature and media. In that series, in the way there wasn't, for example, back when James Blish was writing Star Trek novels, he was essentially, you know, given a very strict Bible, and uh, and, and they're not very interesting novels by and large. Um, well, well, no, uh, that's and, not true. No, hang on, James Blish, if I recall correctly, and you can both correct me if I'm wrong, did not write Star Trek novels at all. What he did was he novelized the screenplays. Right. Right. The, 
There was a he, he window did, he, of freedom, though. He wrote, he, wrote, where, he wrote one original Star Trek novel. Okay, but I mean, there was a window Spot, where, where Pocket... Yeah, well, actually, I've read that years ago, now that you mention it. But uh, there was a window where Pocket basically didn't follow the Bible terribly closely, is my recollection. And it's when Joe Haldeman wrote Star Trek. It's when John M. Ford wrote Star Trek. Mm-hmm. And some of those are supposed to be remarkable. Just they're never going to let them be reprinted because they don't fit into um, right. canon properly. And it's a pity because it's it's a point where imagination takes off and it all blends in a really interesting way. Uh, I didn't read How Much for Just the Planet, which I think is the Ford book, but it's supposed to be spectacularly good. You know, And, of course, mm-hmm. this, this talks to one of those prejudices within our, our very own genre, which is uh, the prejudice against media tie-in material, which tends to sort of carry you know, a, a negative connotation. I do think, as somebody who's written media tie-in, um, I think some some of that prejudice, very specific bit of it, is justified, in that um, you do have to account for the narrow confines of, you know, what you're writing for. Um, so that prevents it from being an entirely free free range novel. And mind you, there are you know any genre will have those limitations and. You know, I'm, I don't think anybody said to Michael Moorcock about his Doctor Who novel, you, can, you can't do anything. It doesn't seem to be a book that bears the signs of being very constrained. Um, but but, 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 but is, that, is, that, is that part of the, at least the off-screen Doctor Who, though? And you'd know this. I mean, do they have a precise Bible? It doesn't strike me as a very Bible kind of show. No. We, don't, we don't have a canon. Yeah. Um, um, and we carefully, I think, I, I wrote a... Mm. A blog a couple of years ago about how how carefully we don't have a canon, and these days we've got to mm-hmm. the point where Moffat is basically saying, um, Moffat, sorry, he's a friend of mine, but um, it's it's <laughs> uh-huh. we, we being British, we all refer to ourselves with, by the surname anyway. Um, <laughs> it's um, the um, Cornell Miner, you know, um, but um, uh, it, it without announcing it like the new Star Trek movie did. And the new Star Trek movie provided Media SF with an entirely new idea that one could get rid of established canon from within that canon mm. and um, reinvent it from the inside and thus hopefully please everybody. Yeah. I think Doctor Who's done that without telling anybody. Um, well, well, the idea well, I mean, that Amy Pond doesn't mm-hmm. know what a doll is. But, but I mean, is, is uh, it also the fact that Doctor Who managed by design or not... Uh, to actually build rebooting into its very nature. Yeah, yeah, by time travel. Yeah, and, well, well, uh, but also, yeah. also by you know, every time, and I mean, I've been watching it since I was knee-high to a grasshopper, every time the Doctor regenerates, the show changes. Hmm. So, so in a sense, the Doctor, I mean, because they take the, the nature of it all from the character of the Doctor himself, and to some degree from how they choose to do it at the time. And it gives them a, a chance to reboot. So in a sense, they've rebooted it 10 or 11 times. Oh, yeah. Quite often, when he gets up off the floor, he brings another genre with him. Mm. He, he, falls, <laughs> he falls down in one genre, gets up in another. Yeah. Um, the, um, you'll, get, you'll get emails from Doctor Who fans saying, of course there's a Doctor Who canon. It is this, this, and this. And then none of these will agree with each other. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so there's Did, all sorts of things like... Didn't you do a book on that? Didn't you do a book on the discontinuities? Yeah, I but, did. I did uh, uh, yeah, this, this is how deep it is within me. Um, <laughs> right. But uh, but there is there is no such thing as Doctor Who canon. Um, but but, but I, I, there, yeah. there is. Sorry, I, I, there's something I, I wanted to bring to the table. Yeah. Actually, I wrote yeah. down one note before the start okay. of yeah, all yeah, this, yeah. 
Um, and this is this is something I think that it, it addresses what we've been talking about, the media literary boundary. I think um, literary SF fans actually give media too easy a ride. I, I don't think it's examined enough. I, I don't think the quality is rewarded, and I don't think the rubbish is punished. If you look at the media categories of the Hugos, they clearly are functioning on a very different set of parameters to all the literary yes, categories. Right. Yes, it, it's like it's like um, it, oh, there's two lots of we here for me. Um, I was going to say you, but I'm I'm in both. So, um, but it, it, it's like SF fans um, kind of treat the media categories as fan categories that uh, they are on a lesser level. Um, so this has not been true of media uh, of movies in the last couple of years because we've had a really good spate of intelligent SF movies. So often oh. we'll get five good nominations. But at the same time, there's a lot of people going, "Oh, you know, I really liked um, uh, the Harry Potter that Harry Potter movie or How to Train Your Dragon or let's put let's mm. bung that on the list." And these are good movies, but what they're not is high quality SF or fantasy movies. They are high quality movies with a bit of that in them. Um, I really like the Harry Potter movies, specifically the last one, but, you know, Duncan Jones, the work of, is a yeah. different sort of thing, sort of thing that should be awarded Hugo's. And um, when it comes to telly, apart from, of course, the deserved success of Doctor Who, which really should be a win every year, um, <laughs> the, um, <laughs> apart from that, it does, again, seem to be, uh, here's some, some that we liked. We won't think about it too hard. We'll just bung that in the box. I think it's true. And... And, and so, because if this were a real representative selection, there would be fringe in that. There, you know, fringe mm -hmm. does SF. It's an SF show. Um, it, comics. Nobody in SF reads any bloody comics. You don't know what the good <laughs> comics are at all. Well, I, mean, I think what you're talking about is, is, is a kind of schism within the, the, the voting membership. Or uh, because I've seen, uh, you're right, the, the Harry Potter films were fun. I, a, a, a film which... I thought it was a very good science fiction film from a couple of years ago. Moon uh, didn't seem to get a huge amount of discussion within the community. And so people have a separate part of their brain for that. Uh, and to some extent, there's a, there's a certain amount of uh, bandwagoning going on. We would like to associate yeah. our genre with something that made billions of dollars. Um, and, and so we tend to honor things that are uh, showpieces because they're showpieces, not because they're conceptually challenging in some ways. Uh, well, I, I think... Uh, sorry, go on. Go, no, go ahead. Uh, well, I, I think we've won so hugely in terms of blockbuster dumb. You know, there's mm. no real need for... You know, it doesn't really make much difference to Harry Potter if it wins the Hugo. I think it'll do all right. Yeah, I have to say this. One of the things that, that always embarrassed me about being in a Hugo ceremony, and, and we're, going to, we're going to give an award to Steven Spielberg, like he even finds out about us. He probably doesn't, <laughs> yeah. is, is the truth of it. But, but then sometimes they do. I mean, th this is one of those dangerous things as well. I mean, I've had people make the argument, you know, we shouldn't present the, a Hugo in this category because the people who are going to receive it don't care. And I think I, that's really not the point. It, I think it's an irrelevant yeah. point. Yeah, I agree uh, completely. Yeah. I, agree, I agree about books as well as mm. movies for that. Yeah. The, atti the attitude of the, of the recipient doesn't matter at all. Um, again, we, we're back to Margaret Atwood here. Yeah. Um, it, it, how she feels is not important. Um, it's, it's the quality of the book. And, well, yes, um, but I used to go. I, I used to go to a, a convention called the Popular Culture Association, which still exists, and it's uh, 
uh, now it's become everything that you can't talk about anywhere else. And they would every year they'd give out an award in the rather touching hope that the recipient would show up. They gave an award to Mary Tyler Moore one year, uh, and eventually they changed the award criteria to uh, somebody who would agree to show up before they got the award. Oh and, dear. <laughs> yeah, that becomes a little bit embarrassing. <laughs> Well, what I'm ta- what I'm talking about though is that yeah. if you're looking for genuine SF and fant- fantasiness out there in media, uh, you'd expect us to be giving nominations to things which are more SF in nature and aren't just oh that TV program I like. Okay, but and, let, let, uh, can I interrupt and ask you this question because I think it's relevant. But apart from the fact that you could look at how the the vote the physical the actual individual voters break down the mechanism for finding out about these things is different there is a critical infrastructure i guess this is part of what you're talking about there's a critical infrastructure there's a recommendation infrastructure that exists within science fiction and the hugos even in the year just gone where they had more people nominating than ever before and it's mm. not as clearly defined for media in fact, I, I do. If I'm, I may be wrong, but isn't it one of the categories that may even be up for reconsideration soon? I know the game category is almost well is up for reconsideration mm-hmm. shortly, uh, and mm. I wondered if uh, that the media one was as well. Cheryl will correct will correct us, of course, and mm. I, uh, that would be good. But I, I just know these things uh, for this sort of reason. It's sort of. Um, I think the comic. I think the graphic. The graphic story, as it's awkwardly called, yeah. which just shows, you know, yeah. um, it, 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 the comic one is on its way out. I think, and mm. probably deservedly so. I, ju- I just hope Bill Williams' best comic in the world actually wins it <laughs> once before it goes. But actually, um, I, I should ask you before Gary whisks whisks us off to another topic. I was going to ask you this question. Oh. Um, I bought an iPad earlier this year, and I started reading comics, which I've not done since I was, well, in fact, since a brief flirtation with Cerebus in the mid-80s. I read a couple hundred episodes of uh, issues of Cerebus. And I don't like superhero stories. So what are the Mm. best non-superhero comics out there? Right. This is one of the things... You know, this is uh, Paul Cordell is the man who tells you what what the, what the good comics are, and I've, I've kind of been you trying, must, been you trying to let stick. other people do this, but you don't, you, you don't um, stick to this already. <laughs> no, 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 it's all right. Um, I, you you largely want to look at Vertigo, DC's mature yeah. readers imprint, which which I'm going to be working for from March. Um, the um, uh, in terms of what's out at the moment, Fables is by far and away the best comic on the planet. It's um, okay. Uh, the um the the uh, and you will recognize this concept the characters from fairy tales um exiled from fa- the fairy tale land and living in modern day new york they ripped that up from um, a tv series is, once upon a time they did uh, <laughs> you could say if one was not being particularly <laughs> cautious in terms of litigiousness <laughs> no no i mean i mean plainly fables must have lifted it from the tv show right Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, moving along. Yes, 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 yes. Um, <laughs> the the um um uh, that's that. It's a great comic, both in terms of execution and artwork, and yep. it's clearly a fantasy comic, and yep. it revels in the in the history of these stories and where they come from, and um, uh, what else is is great. Um, uh, the you'll probably uh, Scott Pilgrim. Um, made into a movie which divides the Scott Pilgrim audience, but the initial seven chapbooks are terrific. Um, mm-hmm. 
there's a borderline superhero comic comic called Planetary. Just read it. Um, which is more. Oh right, I love that. I did. Um, that's um, a kind, friend of ours, yeah. Kind of a commentary on the form more than anything else. Mm. Um, if you're looking at Alan Moore, um, people don't um, mention From Hell enough, which is his very sober, very historically researched um, account of the Jack the Ripper murders. Um, which is more about, you know, we don't pay enough time looking at the social conditions of the murders themselves mm. and doesn't go off too much into wacky theorizing. Um, I like Phonogram, which is about the magic of pop music. Oh, wow. Um, it's mm. about, uh, it's purely about 80s and 90s pop music and it gets very, um, very new musical express and snarky at points. <laughs> But it's a delicious collection of there are there are long runs, there are little short stories. It's about the actual power of pop music when you're young. Um, I think um, oh, uh, Scarlet Traces, uh, Ian Edgington's um, sequel to The War of the Worlds. That's very politically informed and exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, there's uh, DMZ. Um, the uh, demilitarized zone in the Civil War in the future New York. Yeah. Um, Transmetropolitan, um, which is uh, a journalist in a near-future dystopia trying to keep his head above water and trying to bring the corrupt to justice. Very cynical book. Um, Sweet Tooth, some kind of genetic freak um, who's very nice. uh, He's got antlers. Um, in a world he never made. Um, Preacher, um, a journey across America in search of God. Uh, that's very, very rude. If you like rudeness, <laughs> you'll like Preacher. Okay. Um, I could go on. Okay, there's well, there's no, loads no. of these. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll actually... Yeah, I'm taking um, notes here. Well, I'm going to say I'm, I actually just bought one, but uh, I'm actually going to throw, throw one back at you because when it, we were in Reno, uh, Ellen Clay just... Raved to me about one called Mr. Stuffins, and I don't know if oh, you've seen it. The teddy bear. Yes, and mm. it, it it gets my award for, uh, allowing that I know nothing about anything about comics, the best story that hasn't yet been made into a child uh, into a, a a kids you know blockbuster movie. Yeah, uh, I don't know if you've read it. The you know the three three issues yeah. of it. But it yeah. is I mean, it's stunningly brilliant. Uh, just the, the simple idea that you've got this. Military AI loaded into a teddy bear protecting this kid. It's fantastic. It's just I oh, love. Yeah. Fell in love with it completely. So, but oh, and know. one last thing. I, yep. I I really should I really should mention the unwritten. Okay. Um, which is um about stories. Um, it's uh our hero is Tommy Taylor, who is um kind of Christopher Robin and Harry Potter. Yeah. Um, he he is the genuine well, in the real life of the book. Uh, he's the son of a best-selling author who's uh, vanished or died, we're not sure. And uh, he goes to conventions and signs things as the real Tommy Taylor, because he's also, he's genuinely the man's son, but he's also the hero of the books. And um, so he hasn't really got much of his own life. <laughs> and he gradually starts becoming aware that perhaps he really is involved in those books, and perhaps certain elements of that fiction are intruding on life and he kind of goes through um he journeys through genre um through genres um it's an examination of what fiction does and how it does it 
and it includes things like um, there's a tremendous visit to the world of Nazi propaganda. Um, mm. There's um, a one issue which is a sweet animal story about a very sweary rabbit who doesn't want to be <laughs> in his sweet animal story. Um, it's um, that's really worth reading for anybody who's a fan of stories. That that and he, fables has that in common with it. They're both essentially about story. I'm not even going to go near Neil Gaiman because everybody knows Neil Gaiman mm. wrote lots and lots of very yeah. good comics. Yeah. So uh, anyway, that's me doing my usual <laughs> thing. You can tell I can do that at the drop of the pin. Uh, well, well, I can. <laughs> but, but actually, what what I've actually been meaning to ask you about, and I think the more I think about it, it addresses the core issue about some of what we're talking about. Uh, you and I share a love for a podcast that Gary doesn't listen to, I believe. The Word Podcast. Oh, and, yes. And we're both, uh, well, in fact, we've both been fortunate enough, you at more length, but we've both been fortunate enough to be referenced in that podcast at one point or another. Mm, I, and, I remember your letter about um, Manfred Mann, was it? <laughs> <laughs> no, that was not the reference, but we, we, it was just merely why records from the 70s sound better than other records. But... They open their podcast asking people what music was around their house. I'm curious to ask you, because I think Gary and I have touched on it in discussion here a number of times for ourselves, how you started reading the genre, because that's the barrier that often isn't overcome. The bit where you mm. find yourself inside and are then sufficiently familiar with the conventions of the genre to be able to enjoy the more what we would see as the more complex or the more mature works of the field. Mm. Well, I went. I got straight into the what you might call the more mature works. My my brother, who's much older than me, um, left his belongings in cases and suitcases in the attic, and along with Enid Blyton mm -hmm. and Biggles, um, I would go and get out these um, uh, cases full of ancient books. So I grew up with the the, the popular fiction actually of a generation before mine. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I kind of think sometimes this is why I'm, I feel a little bit different that that I'm sort of the wrong age. <laughs> and um, uh, but amongst those, he had long runs of Galaxy and Worlds of If. Yeah. Um, and I read a lot of mm -hmm. that immediately. Uh, but I think my first encounter with science fiction was a Doctor Who novelization by Malcolm Hulk before oh. I watched the TV show. Um, and I remember a Hitchcock zoom moment where during the prologue, I suddenly realized these people are who are talking. They're not people. <laughs> and <laughs> they're actually, actually lizard creatures. And my brain just went boom in that instant. <laughs> and um, I had to have as much of that as possible. I found the word science fiction a bit scary, but I knew I had to have the thing I was scared of. Mm -hmm. And so I read those worlds of if, which were far too adult for me. And um, uh, I went to my library and a lovely ancient Scottish librarian showed me their SF section. And the SF mm -hmm. section is always a bit of a, it's a bit of a liminal space because there's all sorts of things in there kids shouldn't be reading. And but they're allowed to read it because people think that there can't be anything harmful in there. And um, I think a continuing degree of ignorance on the part of the world's librarians about science fiction would be very good for the genre. Um, the, the, this is this is this is why we have YA these days in order to smuggle that feeling into the world. Um, 
So I read Philip Jose Farmer when I was nine. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh, God. It's, um, so, yeah. yeah I, 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 I remember, who did I really like? Andre Norton. Yeah. Um, I... Oh. Uh, there are there are authors who are kind of forgotten. Um, uh, uh, Furland, the Furland books. I think the reason they're forgotten is they're actually hugely copyrighted fringing. Um, <laughs> the Furland, Furland books start with a war against the orcs, and I think Gandalf is actually in it. And um, <laughs> then, <laughs> and I'd love to see this because the cover of Fear in Furland. Um, the cover is. Um, are two young heroes being wed and there are unicorns and there are mountains and there are dragons and in the background the invading flying sorcerer is landing <laughs> oh wonderful <laughs> i cannot think of a more iconic cover for a kid um i, I just saw it and thought i've got to i've got to read that <laughs> and um so, uh, but i i also i also read those bliss star trek novelizations um as asimov and clark um, Asimov's really good for young readers. He's he's got one of these uh, speaker long voices that draws you in, um, and in fact, you kind of evolve with Asimov you, through the short stories onto the novels, and that drags you up a couple of reading levels. Yeah. Um, I um. Oh, goodness! You're taking me back now. There was also Dan Dare in those boxes in yeah. old Eagle Annuals. So my exposure mm. to comics was very early as well, and the wonderful way that Stan Lee has of raising reading levels, of um, you know presenting nine-year-olds with lots of words they don't know, but it's so exciting you have you you immediately understand what a base defiler is. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, uh, the genre has always been, you know. And then when my brother came back home, when I met him when I was eight, he was in Australia, yeah, and. Um, it, it, I, I just pestered him about science fiction all the time. I had been programmed to be a fanboy. <laughs> and uh, I think this this affected my initial choice to be a scientist. And when I failed to be a scientist, I became a writer. So th those were the only two career, <laughs> career paths open to me. Uh, well, do, you, do you think that broke down... Well, encountering that young broke down bar the, the barriers that don't seem to get often broken down for a lot of readers. I mean, the, the reader who looks at some stuff, and I mean, it, it's a common complaint that I hear, particularly from people who would like to see the, the genre be a lot more popular, that it's not accessible enough, that it does put its, you know, as we keep saying about Greg Egan, the entrance exam in the book and everything else. Um, does encountering it younger make it easier, do you think? Um, yeah, because you're not aware of where yeah. any barriers are, and and you assume that any difficulty is your fault. Yeah. Um, mm. uh, you know, I I I don't think I I think I read through without understanding everything by a long way. Sure. I I remember reading Watership Down, and it, there wasn't a rabbit on the front cover, and I only realised they were rabbits about half of the way through the book. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually visualising them as some kind of little gnome or something, <laughs> and um, the um, so you know you don't. I, I think reading what you don't understand is very worthwhile for a kid. Yeah. And uh, in some ways, I don't know. I don't know if we should make it easy. I. I that's the wrong thing to say. I don't mean yeah. exactly that. No, no. I. Th I think. I think young readers should encounter difficulty. Yeah. I will say, I mean, I, when people talk about making the genre more accessible, 
I'm always concerned, not because I want to be innately conservative about it, but I always feel one of the risks of removing too many of those entrance exams in Greg Egan novels is you also risk losing some of the inherent joy and quality of a particular kind of science fiction, which is intrinsic to what we do and what we love and what we appreciate. I mean, you're talking about um, the sense of wonder moments in Arthur Clarke, you know. Mm. And mm. if you take the... If you take the complexity out of it at some point, if you take needing to understand the conventions of the stories out of it, you risk losing that as well. Oh, yeah, but, you know, not everything needs to be on the no, same no, level. No. I mean, you know, as no, long as, I, long I, as I, we still have... As long uh, as we well, still I, have Greg Egan. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, one of the, one of the points you made, uh, Paul, which I, I'm finding utterly fascinating now, is uh, the, the idea of increasing reading levels, that science fiction always forces you to construct the world as you're reading it. And it's, it's a challenge which some people don't like. Um, but essentially that's uh, a sophisticated version of what anybody does when they begin reading fiction. When I was a kid, for example, I remember reading, uh, I, was, I was very fond of historical fiction as well. And uh, something that was, it's funny, I've talked to Cecilia Holland about this, who's a very good historical novelist, and she read these things as a kid. But there was a writer named Harold Lamb, who wrote uh, novelized or novelistic biographies of people like Genghis Khan and Tamerlane and the Crusades and that sort of thing. There was a certain point at which I did not make a distinction between uh, a Harold Lamb book about Tamerlane and a Robert E. Howard story about Conan. They were both set in barbarian worlds, and they both had horses and, and, and lots of blood and violence in them. And eventually, as you grow up, you begin to learn history, and you begin to be able to contextualize the historical fiction and, and, and to recognize it. But for a kid, it might, it, it's, it's a fantasy world. Um, science fiction never gets to that point where you know enough to recognize the world that you're in because the world is mm. recreated every time. So to some extent, the movement, I, I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing with uh, what Jonathan just said about having some, uh, or what you both just said about having some uh, barriers in place, that that experience of learning how to read is an experience in some ways that never goes away when you're reading science fiction or fantasy. Yes, you're all constructing the world. I, I would say that perhaps the definition of what a genre is is a form of mm. reading where the reader is conditioned to look for a particular set of cues, like mm. clues in detective fiction mm. or world building steps in science fiction. Mm. Um, it's one. It's one of. It, it, it's a joy that only we have uh, reading a new short sto science fiction short story cold. And having our brain light up at those particularly specifically placed cues that tell you what sort of a world you're in, mm -hmm. and uh, that, that that process itself is sheer joy for me. I agree. I, I agree. I, I think it's a it, it's a wonderful experience, but it's not an experience that is necessarily a widely popular one. I don't know any science fiction readers oh. who have the same dynamic of reading that, let's say, um, chronic Agatha Christie readers do. Where oh, you but, but sorry, I've just had I've I've just had woo a woo moment. Sorry. <laughs> oh good. Yeah, um, don't want to interrupt, but um, that's why it's a nostalgic genre because it takes us back to our first experience of reading. It that's could very well reading anything for the first time is like when you're a kid. Yeah. And no, we no. we're the people who keep on doing it. I can see that. Well, I mean, uh, I, I go yes. back to my historical fiction. If I'm reading something that takes place in uh, medieval Europe and I'm a kid, 
this is a completely new world to me. I don't know anything about it. And I'm figuring out, okay, they they don't have machine guns and, uh, and, and they don't have antibiotics and they don't have cars. Uh, and that's the conditions. Those are the conditions of the world I'm reading. Um, and as, as, as I mentioned, eventually you begin to recognize, oh, yeah, this is 13th century England. Uh, with science fiction, you never quite get to that moment where you say, oh, yeah, this is because you don't know. Mm. It's, it's being created for you. And so, you're, you're, yeah, you're constantly recreating the experience of, 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 of early reading. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, this, wow. is, this is something. There you go. And it also probably overlaps with what, one of the reasons why we keep harking back to the magic of young adult science fiction that we grew up reading. You know, it's always that. Mm. Spe- and, and which quite often when you sort of say to someone, well, you have to read X group of young adult books. And whether you're talking about, you know, you know the first sort of choice off the shelf, which is always the Heinlein juveniles or not, uh, quite often people who come to them fresh will go, what on earth are you talking about? They mm. don't get it because mm. they weren't there when you read it at that right age in that right time. Mm. Right time. You know, by sheer accident, by sheer accident, or perhaps the choice of my librarian, I never read Heinlein at the right age. Okay. I read I read Glory Road when I was in uh, secondary school, mm. and mm. I thought it was nice and sexy, but it didn't really blow my mind. Yeah. And um, I um, it, so Heinlein's a bit of a blank space to me. I don't I don't feel that great uh, yeah. passion and nostalgia for him. Yeah. I, I feel that for Asimov. Sure. Well, the interesting thing about um, Asimov, though, you're talking you're talking about Asimov's adult novels, I presume, not the Lucky Star novels. Um, I, I read them all on the same level. They were all sold on the same level oh. in Britain. Um, the ah, Lucky okay. Star novels weren't categorized as juveniles at all. Um, there was one. There was a logo for Asimov that was just on everything. Ah. Um, and and um, but but there is definitely. You know, there's easy Asimov and there's slightly harder Asimov. It's all pretty easy, but you know, there's, there's a, a ladder you can climb when you're a young reader with him. Um, well, I remember. And, uh, uh, just just as a parenthesis to that, I, I I've been reading Asimov's robot stories and and the Foundation stories and, and and some of the standalone stories for a long time before I stumbled across a couple of Lucky Star novels, and I was massively disappointed. Uh, not only right. because I don't think they're very good, but because here's somebody who's been a very challenging, interesting writer, and now he's explaining all this stuff to me, which he didn't explain <laughs> in the stories before. Right. So it's the it's the feeling of of having things actually explained to you, and thus losing those neurons going off. That, that yeah, dislocation, that sort of having to find your own your own way in it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I I do. Um, I'm a bit. Uh, I I like the fact there is YA there now. Um, I it's not for me. I don't care about it. I don't want to read it. Um, it's. Um, I know everybody's going to say no. You must read this thing. I'm sure it's good. I'm mm-hmm. sure there's loads of good things. But you know, I've only got so much time. Yeah. And um, and I think that what one one of the things that depresses me about the genre is the nostalgia. Um, I, 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 the part of me just wants to burn everything more than 20 years old and, um, that, um, even 10 that, you know, as a genre, we, we should be the genre that looks to the future and we so don't. And, um, mm-hmm. it, I, I do think also one hangs around often, especially at British conventions with people who haven't read science fiction for years and, um, you know that this is grossly unfair. Uh, this is grossly unfair to the majority of pe- the people I'm talking about. Yeah. But there's there's a, an element I think of truth to this, and um, I think our 
nostalgic love for the science fiction we read as kids, a lot of which was for kids, yeah, and mm. a lot of, a lot of which plays for kids now, even though it wasn't then. Because um, Asimov, this is why Asimov takes this surprising step down when he regards himself as writing for children, because we kind of regard all his work really as suitable for children. Um, and and he's not he's not very good. We we know that now, really, really. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he's vital to the development of the genre, and I think he's, you know, he did an awful lot in terms of his factual work. Um, Clark, I would argue for as as having some big literary wallop. I think that um, Clark, at his best, actually does the things that religion does. Um, I I don't think you could claim the same for Asimov. And and what they have in common is no love for character at all, apart from the fact that Clark kind of knows that and does other things instead. And Asimov <laughs> doesn't really know that and persists in being jolly about character when there's nothing really... Hey, I'm just talking now. Could you? When it's your podcast, you've got... <laughs> I've, said a, no, I've said at least three no. things in a row which will get me Hang shouted on. at. Wait a second, I now know what I have to say. Paul, I think we're rambling. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> That's what it should be on your T-shirt. Oh, uh, well, I see. You're right. there, are, there are all three things I'd like to respond to. I mean, the, uh, the, on, on the one hand, you, you're right about reading YA fiction because it's a huge, huge, and I don't read nearly as much of it as I'd like to. But part of me thinks that when you're uh, looking at uh, a novel like uh, The Hunger Games or, or a Paolo Bacigalupi's Shipbreaker, if, if those could somehow be marketed without being called YA, uh, would think they're perfectly fine science fiction. And what you mentioned about Asimov is equally true of Heinlein's, well, what passed for his adult fiction um, uh, when he was writing the juveniles. I've said this on the podcast before many times. I, 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 you'd be hard-pressed to find a science fiction novel written before 1960 that wouldn't be suitable as a young adult book today. Yeah. Um, and, and some of them have become that, in fact. Some of them have become retrofitted that way. Um, I'm not sure. I, I, I know what you mean about the uh, reliance on nostalgia about a certain kind of aging reader. But one of the things that's stopped happening that when I was growing up, uh, every contemporary science fiction writer was in competition with Heinlein and Asimov and Clark because they were always in print. They were always available. They were there. Right. And, and you had to make a decision. Am I going to read this new book by a person I've never? That doesn't happen anymore. I mean, a lot. I'm discovering a lot of the classic science fiction works that uh, that some of us are nostalgic about are barely available to younger readers. Yeah. Uh, they have nothing to look at except the last ten years. And there's a point at which you begin to realize that while there is a lot of stuff before that, which is if you're trying to get that same uh, that that same kind of thrill, Clark. Uh, Clark's early work can do that very well. John Wyndham could do that very well, I think. Oh yeah, oh. yeah. I I think um, well, John Wyndham's very much still in print. Yes. Well, he is. Yes, that's true. Uh, but I mean, he he was also concerned about character in a way that uh, the, the Clark and Asimov weren't. Uh, mm. But by and large, uh, I have I have two feelings about that. One is uh, in the academic world, where you have a lot of people who actually teach science fiction classes, um, and when I talk to them about, I don't know, Embassy Town, um, or let's no, let's go back to, oh, as long as we're talking about China, we'll go back to something like Perdido Street. And all, over and over again, I say, well, that's on my pile. I'm going to get to that. So you've got a group of people that I hang around with a lot that are 10 and 15 years behind what's going on. You can't talk to them about science fiction. On the other hand, uh, when I talk to young people, 
uh, who believe that, well, maybe maybe Bill Gibson invented science fiction, but if he didn't, uh, Scott Card certainly did. And they're completely <laughs> unaware of anything other than the last 10 years. That's, that's not that young people, though, is it? That's, that's kind of um, my age people. Well, okay. I, I think it's really interesting that Ender's Game is now a, a YA book. It's, mm. now, it's now a kid's book you know, taught in schools or whatever else. It's now a YA classic. Which I find, I mean, it, which it distinct really was not when it came out. You can see why it's accessible in that way. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not mm. sure that I'm entirely comfortable with it being treated in that way, you know. Um, well, I suppose I suppose kid protagonist. Um, oh, sure, sure. No, nothing in there apart from genocide, which <laughs> much preferable to sex or drug use. Bit of genocide. Yes. No one really. And, and, the, and the genocide was really the fault of the grown-ups, so it's okay. Oh, <laughs> I think on that happy note, there, there's a lot of things that I'd still like to have covered. Uh, your podcasting yourself, we should actually give a, a, a shout out to the SF Squeecast. You've been doing oh, that yeah. for. Oh yes, half a year now, longer. Me, me, me Catherine Valente, Liz Baird, um, Lynn Thomas, and uh, Sean McGuire. We have a great time. We just uh, we bring, it's show and tell. We bring <laughs> one nice thing every every week and um, every month and talk about it. Mm-hmm. I've got to say, Gary, podcasting once every month occasionally sounds like a good idea. <laughs> um, on the other hand, podcasting for a month at a time doesn't. No. <laughs> But, and sometimes we get. I mean, I, 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 I know we're coming to the end, and there's all kind. There are all kinds of things <clears throat> that I'd love to talk to you about, Paul, at some other time. Yes. Uh, I was going to say. I mean, w w one of the things which fascinates me uh, is the fact that I'm, I'm really glad to see you're writing more short fiction. Not enough of it. Um, oh, thank and, you. It's my my favorite thing. Really? Uh, uh, yeah. And, and and some of this is well. What was the story? Okay, this uh, I'm, I'm bad on titles, but the story you had in Eclipse, which was um, the first science fiction story I think I ever read about status updates. <laughs> it may be the only uh, one I've ever read about status updates. Well, I'm I'm um, thank you very much. Uh, I'm very pleased with my short fiction. I uh, I think the best thing I've ever done is the novel, which is out next October from Tor. Um, it's called Cops and Monsters. It's you could call it urban fantasy, and in fact, no, it's urban fantasy. I'm going to reclaim those words. Um, <laughs> Good, because what 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 we what I have to say, right? Uh, as all urban fantasy writers have to say, is you know, Ch China Mabel's an urban fantasy writer as well, don't you? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's chip on the shoulder from me. Um, but um, it's. Um, yeah, it's the Sweeney Do Buffy. It's um, the modern metropolitan police undercover coppers uh, get to, are able to see the supernatural and feel they should use uh, genuine police methods against it. And um, it's I've just I think it's the best thing I've ever done. It's emotional and serious, and I think says some things, but it's also funny. And it's it's just a rollicking tour de force, basically, Jonathan. That's, <laughs> that's, that's fun. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not oh, quite dude. sure what to say. I am looking forward to reading the book, but I have to say, I'm not quite sure what to say. I mean, no, I think it's entirely appropriate that you, that you should get behind the book. Definitely. It's as good as Heaven's Shadow. It's, <laughs> it's a uh, joyous romp. <laughs> a joyous romp. It's not a 
not it's not a romp it's not a, it's okay yeah no, stop stop i can i can't do this just as well i've got a publicist isn't it it's oh, uh, uh, give us a whole new idea we're going to start reviewing books in locus before they're written Ooh. or at least, at least we we've already doing we're already doing it before they're published in some cases but, but this one's been written this is all finished isn't it paul um, it's just gone off to um, the wonderful copy editor Peter Lavery for the, mm-hmm. for the last the last oh, do awesome. around. Yeah, so, so. Which means Ark should come out in about March. I guess. Yeah, that would be um, lovely. Oh, I'm re- I'm looking forward to people reading it. Yeah, well, we're looking forward to it too. I mean, one of the things that, that both of us are about to undertake, in fact, is answering the question: What sort of science fiction fantasy media are you looking forward to in 2012? So this falls into that category, which is. I shall be eager to see it when we get a chance. I will do. Thank you very much, and thank you so much for having me on the show. I've been a big fan of this show for such a long time. It feels like, oh, yes, I'm, I'm actually on it. I, I will have to. I'll listen to this while I'm running. Yeah, this is going to be a strange. Story. You've listened to more of this show <laughs> like, than I have. That'll that'll be like being in Inception. I'll have my own voice in my own brain. <laughs> well, I'm very very glad you could come on for the first time. Uh, it may well be it, it happens occasionally that we, that we that there'll be a reason to have you back, and, and we'd love to. And of course, we'll see you, you know, probably somewhere next year. And indeed, I, 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 we very much. I, I very much look forward to it. Sorry, Gary. Okay, no, I, I look forward to seeing you in Chicago at least, uh, and uh, I would be great if you could come to World Fantasy in Toronto as well. That sounds good. Okay, well, on that cheer, right. thank you very much, Paul Cornell. Thank you. And good night, Gary. And good morning, Jonathan.